On this episode of Amuse, we feature artist and writer Tony Fleeks, who is best known for his work on the comic series My Little Pony. His company, Fleeks Design, has a client list that features Disney, Marvel, 20th Century Fox, the Milwaukee Brewers, Pittsburgh Steelers, Monster Garage, and Taco John's. His comic works have been published by Random House, Image Comics, Boom, IDW, and Terminal Press. Joining the conversation as co-host is Dan Curtis, co-owner of Zeppelin Comics. I'm your host, Stefan Schultz, and this is Amuse. Tony, thank you very much for joining us today. And Dan, thank you for arranging this awesome interview. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. So, Tony, you're calling in from Los Angeles. That's correct? Right. Okay. Um, I want to get started with your origin story, kind of how you got started in the creative uh, world. What, what are your earliest memories of uh, creative endeavors? I come from a big family, um, but for the like the first four years of my life, I was... Uh, an only child. My next sister is is four years younger than me, and then I got three other brothers and sisters after that. So uh, there was a lot of kids uh, in our house, and uh, me being the oldest by that far uh, sort of put me on my own a lot of the time. And so I always drew. Um, and Even it, at it was four years old, you were starting to draw. I mean, that's when I started. Yeah, uh, not professionally. <laughs> <laughs> No, but I feel like I never really made the connection. But, uh, you know, when I, my parents started having other kids to, to tend to, I still sort of had to figure I, – I went from being, you know, like the star of the show all the time to just sort of like having to figure out something to do. Oh, um, okay. We don't so, want to go through the therapy of that, so <laughs> I totally understand. <laughs> I yeah. grew up in an equally big house, and uh, I, I kind of felt lost too. So I, that's kind of how I got into creativity as well. You'd think it would be the opposite, that your family would just be like one big party, but it's not always like that. It's a lot of moving pieces to, to keep everything, you know, to keep everybody at uh, at soccer practice and ballet class and all the, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a lot. It's a, a a very stressful endeavor, I would imagine. I have not, I got no kids. I, I sort of went the other way because I decided to have a career as a comic book artist instead. Are you originally uh, from Los Angeles or, or somewhere else? No, I'm originally from Baltimore, but my family moved to Colorado uh, when I was 10, um, and they all live there still. And then when I was about 20, I moved to the Midwest, uh, to South Dakota for an art job, and then from there I moved to L.A. probably about 15 years ago. Where about in Colorado? I'm, I'm from Colorado as well. Oh, yeah, Colorado Springs. Oh. <laughs> well, so if, you, if you're from Colorado Springs, you might know. When I was in high school and and maybe still in middle school, there was like a extracurricular uh, cartooning class called Ink Spinners that was like a, a school. It was like a I'm trying to think of what to compare it to, but just like you know, you go to school and then you take extracurriculars, and this was like a a school outside of school. Like if you were like if you went to a theater mm-hmm. and you did like plays and stuff. Uh, like a like a community theater. It was sort of like the community theater version of cartooning. And how did you discover that? Were you, were you drawing in school and, and somebody said you should try this? Or Yes, for sure. Um, and I had also done like, you know, gifted and talented classes and all that stuff where uh, they they pick out the one thing that you're super good at and, and they mm-hmm. sort of like did on it and focus on it. Um, but I, I bought comics at that time too. So it's quite possible that it's something where there would have been like a flyer in the comic book store 
or they would adver- advertise at places where people would, uh, you know, want to know about cartooning. And they would have these seminars where they would bring in like professional comic book artists. And then at the seminars that like, so I'd go saw like uh, John Romita Jr. do like a big talk for for a day or two, and uh, J. Scott Campbell, the artist of like my favorite comic at the time, Gen Thirteen, uh, he gave this talk, uh, and he like he was from Colorado, so it just seemed like a real re- possible thing to to do this job at, to me as a kid. Um, and then at those seminars, they'd be like, come back weekly and we'll teach you how to make, you know, animation or comic books or, you know, graphic design or whatever. It was a, it was a very encouraging place. And how old were you at this time? Yeah, like eighth grade through, I, you know, I didn't take cl- classes there the whole time I was in high school. But like I said, they'd have these seminars. So you'd go back in and I'd see these people. And, and then when it came time to go to art school, they were the ones that were, you know, they would be like, oh, you should definitely check out this school or this school. I was super interested in going to the Joe Kubert school, which is like the the comic book college, you know, at the time is the only place that had any sort of comic book course. Mm-hmm. But that was in New Jersey. And like I said, I was from a big family. And so they didn't have like New Jersey money. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I just went to the, the local, I went to the art Institute in Denver and did like a associates program there two years. And then before I went there, like right when I graduated high school, one of my friend's dads took me aside and said, like, he knew I was going to be an artist. Although I feel like this advice is just sort of the thing that this kind of guy would just say to anybody. But he was just like, if anybody offers you any job, (laughs) you say yes. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, that's good good advice for an artist. About it for years after, you know, like after he said it to me, I'm just like, did he just think I was dumb? No, I'm just like, I should just, you know, like, nobody else is ever going to want you. So you just say yes. Just, just hit your wagon to the first horse that comes along. That's right. My mom's been saying that to me with every girl I date. Just whatever it'll take you. Uh, but, yeah, once I got out of school, the first place that was like, hey, do you want a job? I said yes. And uh, that was in uh, South Dakota at a news station. Uh, making graphics for the news. So I went to school for uh, computer animation because that was like the closest thing to what my skills aligned to uh, that that was available at the school that I was going to. And I gleaned as much as I could from from that. And for a little while, I was like, oh, maybe I'd do this. But it wasn't necessarily what my heart was, you know? Like, it wasn't necessarily what the... If I had my druthers, I would do what I do now. But it, But it was like, I'll learn this stuff and I can, you know... I can do this if this is the job that somebody, you know, offers me. And, yeah, so I worked at the news station for six years. And then while I was there, uh, I, I got to that point where you're working a regular job where you can sort of do it on autopilot. And I was like, all right, well, you know, I'm in my early 20s. Rob Liefeld already had, a, you know, millions of dollars by now. So, like, I should be I should really be stepping up my game. Uh, I, if I'm going to make comics, I got to make comics, you know. Yeah. So you had identified pretty early that you wanted to do comics. Yeah. Okay. And then you got uh, you got sidetracked. Well, you got a job offer, and the advice you were given was take anything that comes your way. So you yeah. ended up in South Dakota doing uh, graphics for a news station. Yeah, I guess I sort of skipped over that part. Yeah, like the my goal was always either to make comics or to make like Walt Disney movies. Mm-hmm. And I knew it from a very early age, from like when I 
as soon as I knew there was a job of making comics, I was like, I, I would like to do that. You know, like that seems like what I like to do. And, and I sort of pointed all my, all my resources towards that, like my mental resources. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a single source other, you know, like <laughs> I just worked at fast food places when I was a kid. So I didn't, I had no, uh, I didn't invest financially in my career, but yeah, so I always was headed that, that direction. And I identified super strongly with, these artists who would were like my age, you know, or they got in when they were my age. So like I mentioned Rob Liefeld, like I would always like idolize this guy because he's like 16, uh, you know, and then like getting hired to do pinups and stuff or, or like Joe Madureira was like 16 when he started uh, working at Marvel. And so on the one hand it was encouraging, but on the other hand it set up like this expectation that like, you know, so if you're like a super prodigy, like one of these guys, yeah, that makes sense. But all I thought was just like, it's when you get to be 16, that's when you should be about at working at Marvel age, you know? Yeah. But we all fail compared to Mozart, right? Yeah. Like that's a high bar. Jeez. When I turned 24, I was like, well, Orson Welles already made citizen Kane. What am I doing with my life? You know, (laughs) I compare myself to like the most, most successful person at a thing. Just like, I should just be able to do that. So perhaps I'm a psychopath. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's good to set the goals very high. I mean, geez. Yeah. Yeah, that way wherever I land, it's sort of like, this is this is fine. Like, this is good enough. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious if there were some aspects of the of the South Dakota news job that, like, taught you something that, that you use today that, that influenced you. So it's not like a complete derailment of your, of your life plan, but like an unexpected bonus. Yeah, no, it totally wasn't. I mean... It taught me how to work on a on a deadline. Mm-hmm. Uh, I learned a ton about graphic design, which I think is actually like a, a very underrated thing to know about as a as a comic book artist or as a as any sort of artist. You know, like you can definitely tell when you see people's work that they have no uh, concepts of graphic design. You know, or or design where it's just like, oh, this person can really draw very well, but you know, composition is not their strong suit. Mm-hmm. Um, and we learned about, you know, like fundamentals of composition and just sort of like how to do that stuff on the fly and like what really works if you just need to knock something out really fast. Like, uh, you know, there's a tornado and we need to make graphics about it and they're either going to have, you know, graphics that are just a blank screen and say tornado or we're going to put together the fastest, you know, tornado graphics package that we can. Well, working in that, that deadline um, atmosphere is really, really important. I see a lot of, of new artists, editors in, in my field, graphic designers, that deadlines don't mean a thing to them. And in the broadcast world, I, I worked in, in television news for a few years myself, and it goes on at 5 o'clock, or, or, you, it, yeah. or you, you, know, you blew it. There's no 5.05. It's, it starts at 5. So the deadline aspect, I think Dan touched on a little bit. I want to kind of go into that a bit more. Um, the corporate world news, um, I see you've done stuff for the Milwaukee Brewers, the Bengals, Steelers, Monster Garage, Taco John's. All those corporate clients have a very specific list of things that they want done and most likely deadlines, either their their promotional campaigns going live um, at a certain date. So, can you talk about what lessons you did learn in kind of that corporate environment and, you know, deadlines and, and things of that nature? What you're saying is exactly right. Like the, 
the stress of working in the news comes from there's a TV, like you're putting a show on TV and it was the Midwest. So like everybody watched the same news channel. It was the nineties, two thousands. So everybody watched the same news channel. Um, it, it wasn't like, uh, democratized and spread, spread about like it is today where people are getting their news off Facebook and stuff. Like they would watch our channel to get the news and you had to have it ready to go at five and, you know, like five other times a day. Like it was a news channel. So they had several news shows. So, yeah, it was constantly being on time and having to have things spelled right. And, like, <laughs> at a real formative age, one time I misspelled America. That was a. <laughs> I was just going to ask, do you have any nightmare <laughs> stories? <laughs> that was a real bummer. How did you spell it? Uh, just with America without the A? <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't spell it the fun way. I think I just had, like, an extra, it was like two M's probably, you know, just like accidentally double struck the key. Sure. Uh, and you're just moving so fast that. Usually the producers would look over everything, but on quick deadline days, it would just be like, all right, we just got to go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was embarrassing. But having to have all that stuff done that fast, sort of at a time where I was like 19, 20, uh, I left there when I was 25 or 26. So just like really formative career years, you know, where you're sort of like setting uh, work habits in stone. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know if that was good or bad insofar as like interpersonal relationships or uh, just for my mental well-being regularly but for having a healthy respect of deadlines it was pretty great because Mm -hmm. like you just said before we started talking that you had uh, a bunch of deadlines over the weekend I also did uh, I got to sleep like uh, at 8 a.m. ouch uh, after (laughs) after hitting all of these big deadlines Except for one that I hit, like, was like a 10-page script. I got five pages done and the and a written outline, and it's somebody I work with all the time. So it was just like, all right, this uh, this one I can put off till tomorrow. But, uh, yeah, like, a lot of work got done at this house this weekend, and usually happens most weekends just because I say yes to every, <laughs> every job that comes along still from this guy who, like, I haven't spoken to in 20 years telling me, hey, you should say yes to every job that comes along. <laughs> And also, I forgot that it was February last month, and that really that really boned me this year. <laughs> the short month, the deadlines creep up faster. Yeah, yeah. Plus, plus three days. So I'm curious, are you still doing that kind of stuff? Like the the, the clients I was listening earlier, the Brewers, the Bengals, yeah. Monster Garage, Taco John's. Are you still doing that stuff, or is that kind yeah. of past? That sort of thing, I, what I started doing more of is those clients would come along, and up until COVID, I worked in a studio um, with, with four other guys. And when those things would come along, uh, like I would constantly be on, uh, a deadline for like a, a pony issue or a star Wars or something. Like I was always drawing comics. And then in the part time I would be working on my own creator own stuff. And so like, I already had a pretty full schedule, but as you probably know, like those jobs, the money is very good. So like you, like when they come along, you want to, you don't want to tell the client to go find somebody else. So we would always just take on those jobs as a studio. And so it would be like the email would come in and then I'd go to the guys and say like, Hey, I got this thing coming. Who wants to get down on this? And then we would just sort of team up on them and knock them out earlier in my career. Those things would keep like, keep me going because I would work for one ad agency or another ad agency or like I worked for those sports places because I, uh, because in South Dakota they make the, uh, jumbotrons, 
that they use at like almost all the major stadiums, uh, Dactronics. Mm. That place, a buddy of mine got a job as an art director there, and then they just started needing, you know, like, oh, the Brewers are looking at changing their logo, uh, or not their logo, their mascot. So uh, g- can you give me like a f- few different Brewers logo mascots? Or this team is d- is doing a new opening for their, you know, Monday night games. Uh, can you storyboard out like a, like an opening for a, like an animated opening. So the, I would do all sorts of jobs like that. Um, and then same deal, like because I was somebody who hit, hit deadlines, they would just come back around and, uh, and I could draw. Okay. Like, I don't think it's great work now, you know, uh, 20 years later or how many years later it is. But at the time it was like, yeah, this is better than, better than other people. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how to, how to grade my young self. I hate him. <laughs> <laughs> but I can look back on it and see that it, that he's you know he's doing some things right, uh, you know a couple of things right at least. Um, and also it was uh, the Midwest, so it, it was sort of like big fish, mm-hmm. small pond, where there weren't too many other people doing that, especially at that time, um, in that area. So like I had sort of a lockdown. Like I would be in the newspaper as like, <laughs> you know, like the guy who draws cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> and I had like you know like my first comic came out and it was I was the only person that had put out a comic from that place you mm-hmm. know so um, last question about the the corporate world before we move into the comic stuff it's commissioned work one way or the other but how do you navigate um, uh, the corporate environment <clears throat> as somebody who comes from you know that's mostly what my bread and butter here is in the Silicon Valley trying to be creative and keeping the juices flowing and things like that in, in those world, uh, corporate world is, is, can be very difficult. Um, how, yeah. uh, how do you maintain that? Um, and what obstacles uh, do you, do you come out on against in the corporate environment? Well, I mean, sometimes you don't maintain it, you know, like sometimes a, a job just comes along and it's so uninspiring that it's just like, all right, well, we just got to do this, you know, like you just have to push through it. And, I've never had an issue with uh, blocks like writer's block or artist block uh, because I'm oriented to just get the work done. So, like, if if something comes along, like, if I didn't have work to do, I, I imagine I could probably have some sort of block. Although I fantasize about not having work to do because I have so many, uh, <laughs> like, my own things that I just want to do. But I could definitely see, like, sitting around and not doing anything for a month just because I don't have anything, you know, I found a new show on Netflix last night. I was just like, I'd like to watch this for a week. Uh, but I, I can't. <laughs> I mean, I can, but I just have to draw at the same time. There you go. So either you don't, you just sort of work through it. It's just work. You have to just do the, the parts. Or you think about it as training. You think about it as, like, just getting better at this thing. So I did storyboards for Taco John's, which is a Midwest, like Midwest Del Taco, basically. It's delicious. Uh, they're heavy on tater tots. Uh, there's like nacho cheese dip. Very good. All authentica Mexicana. <laughs> yeah, Taco John's. It's taco, but then if you're just like, I don't know about Mexican food, they're like, oh, but John's though. And you're like, oh, okay. Oh. <laughs> if you just said Juan's, then I might have had a question, but Taco John's, I'm on board. Tater tots um, and cheese sauce. <laughs> super good. Like A-plus fast food. <laughs> And I, I don't, we don't work for them anymore, so I'm not saying that as a, a paid shill. Um, but I would, 
have to draw tacos or tater tots or breakfast burritos or nachos um, over and over and over and over again. And I, the client wanted to see, not the, the ad agency that I work for, they didn't care because they're like me or just people who work. But the client, if they spotted a, a you know the same nachos, <laughs> they would be like, "Are we paying this guy two times?" You know, so I would just have to draw new nachos every time. Copy and paste. It's not acceptable. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> so, but I was like, I, I realized I have to draw the nachos again, and so I'll just get really good at drawing these nachos, you know, or I'll just get really good at drawing things from different angles or. Like a difficult thing to do is thinking up a new angle for a thing the 1,000th time you have, you've done it and not have it be some wacky, uh, you know, like film school, <laughs> you know, like fish lens, music video angle. <laughs> and so I would have to do that. And then it, as it turns out, like in comics, that is also an issue that you deal with, you know, like <clears throat> what's your 500th? Uh, headshot look like you know what's your 500th two shot look like I would sort of use that work as an opportunity it was never the thing that I was like aiming towards doing but if it was just like you know if my life had shook out different and they were like uh, I was talking right now to a commercial storyboard podcast for ad agency you know (laughs) freelancers I I would be pretty happy you know like I draw for a living that's cool I never thought of it as like the creative work because also I wasn't I, it was creative work, but it, the creative was already done. Like when they showed up to me, they had scripts, they'd done all the concepting. I would throw ideas at them and they would not care. I was just sort of like a, an art robot. I would just go and, and make the art and, and turn it back into them. But also they, they were always presentation storyboards, which, I mean, you know what that is because you worked in production, but for people who don't know, uh, storyboards that you see, like the ones that like Gabe Hardman do, uh, or you see on like DVD special features uh, are like black and white and sort of pencil drawn um, and presentation boards are more like what animatics are now um, where the client would want to see a commercial sort of like on Mad Men when they hold up the uh, like the boards and, and give a presentation they would do full color finished artwork of these things uh, so I would do full color drawings of tacos and people eating tacos and wacky scenarios around tacos and the agency i worked for was a midwest agency and they were all about like local hometown values and stuff you know mm-hmm. and so a lot you'd have to draw a lot of farms and a lot of people in pickups and you know just like americana with two m's <laughs> but yeah i got really good at drawing uh, all kinds of different stuff and, and coloring myself and just sort of like learning uh, tricks to do do stuff really quickly uh, because because deadlines again. So, yeah, that was sort of my corporate artwork experience thus far. Again, like if they come back, if they need something nowadays, usually I'll find somebody to jam on. Like we'll get together and somebody else will do the line art or I'll do the colors or I could just let somebody else do it entirely because I have work to do. But I see that corporate money coming through and I'm like, well, I should get a piece of this, you know, like I should, I should get something on this. Uh, There's, there's money here I could make and I don't know when I'll have money to make again. So I feel like I should always try and do some of that work. Well, the advice I always give to new, to new people um, working in this industry is you've got to be available. If, if, if I call you for something, even though you're amazing and even though uh, you're a good price, if you keep saying, no, I'm not available, 
you're going to start dropping down the list and I won't call you anymore. Not because you're, you're not good quality and not because you're a good price. It's just because, well, you're never, you're so busy. You're never available for me. I'm not going to call you anymore. So that's advice I always give is like, yeah, yeah. take as much as you can. There's plenty of time to sleep when you're dead. <laughs> <laughs> Which will be sooner than other people <laughs> yes. because it's so much work. <laughs> Uh, but what a life you will have lived. Yes, that's how I feel too. We are the, of the same mind in, on this. Uh, but I also have a lot of friends who uh, swear by the power of saying no to things and better things coming along and all that. But I'm just like, I don't know. I think maybe you're different than me. So I'm I'm about the power of yes. As you could see, like if you look at, I mean, you Googled me to prepare for this. You see a, a very broad and different swath of <laughs> properties and projects and you know, like, I'm not somebody who you could really pigeonhole, unless you were just like, oh, it draws my little pony. You know, like, I'm not somebody that you could just say, like, oh, he does this sort of thing. You know, like, it's all very different and out there. But so. you do draw a lot of my little pony. Boy, oh, boy. <laughs> I sure do. <laughs> yeah. That, so that was, like, my first comic book gig. Like, I had made comics. I had comics published by publishers, and, like, I'd done work here and there. But sort of like my first somebody emailing me and hiring me for a job was that. Like it was an editor that I had spoke to, and he was the editor on Ninja Turtles also, and I sent him Ninja Turtles samples. And they didn't have a spot on Ninja Turtles at the time. Uh, but he was like, hey, you do sort of cartoony stuff too. Uh, we're pitching this My Little Pony license to Hasbro. Would you be interested in drawing that book? Like could you send us a sample of that that we could show Hasbro, like this is what these comics would look like? And I was like, yeah, that sounds cool. Uh, and so I did that. That was me just giving free artwork away, which <laughs> which I try not to do. But at the time, you know, like as an editor was emailing me and asking for a thing. Of course I say yes. Hmm. And that was in 2012, and I started working on those books in 2012, and it's been the steadiest work uh, since then. Uh, just because, you know, like I hit deadlines and uh, it, I got pretty good at drawing them and um, and I have a like a, a understanding of the of the property and the fans and the kids that like it and the grownups that like it. So it's pretty unique for somebody to have a almost 10 year stretch on a book nowadays. For sure. Uh, <laughs> That's what I have on this thing. I'm approaching 50 issues, which if you do the math is... Uh, less than five years worth but uh you know it's I'm, it's not a monthly thing there's like five of us that work on it uh regularly like i do or maybe there's like two or three that sort of do as regularly as i do yeah it's been super steady and it just sort of keeps me you know in a house and it, <laughs> it keeps me on shelves um and it was also same way like drawing nachos in different angles i i looked at it as a way to sort of build my build up my skills. This is definitely, you know, putting in the 10,000 hours. People say it's like your first thousand pages or whatever. Mm -hmm. I feel like I could probably do 10,000 pages before I'm like a, <laughs> before I'm like a master of anything. It's definitely me figuring out comics, you know, like it was a, a pretty low entry level job, low expectation, uh, except for from the very rabid fan base that already existed before I got there. Um, but I could, you know, as far as like the people in the business, they're just like, yeah, just draw the ponies. It's whatever. I show it to them. They're like, this looks like ponies. You know, <laughs> the the people at Hasbro 
are a little more exacting about what they want, but I think also they're just people who work jobs and they go like, yeah, that looks good. Uh, and then you send it out to the to these rabid fans and they're just like, her wings, she doesn't have wings. Her tail's on the wrong side. That's not what her cutie mark looks like. <laughs> these ponies look like tacos. <laughs> <laughs> Why are they eating nachos all the time? All oh, my characters color. eat nachos. <laughs> I have a very specific. I can draw the skits. hell out of nachos. <laughs> so, but that's that's interesting because, and and for anybody that doesn't know My Little Ponies or or grew up with the toys or the shows or the revival uh, that it's been going through this this century. All the ponies are the same size. The toys that they're based off of came out of the same mold, and they were just done in different colors, and they had different cutie marks, that little brand on their hind leg that kind of defines, along with their color code, who they are. Because they don't have a different face shape, and they don't have a different Hmm. size or whatnot, at least... You know, it's it's progressed and whatnot. So it's it's interesting from an artistic perspective. How do you give so much personality and information from kind of a blank mold? Well, that's a, sort of like a gift and a curse. Uh, they have three molds now because there's Earth ponies who have are just like the horses you and I know, uh, and then there's unicorns and Pegasuses. So they're three different molds. So just on like a very a surface level, you can differentiate them by having uh, a horn or not a horn. Um, but the the designs on the the characters, even though they all are working from the same base, uh, when I came onto the project, I was just enamored with them because they're each so unique. And like you you look at them, you could tell somebody smart made them. Uh, the like the main characters were all designed by this lady Lauren Faust, who's like a, a legendary animator. Uh, but also just like the background characters and the side characters that they would just pass off to somebody else, you could tell that like it was all made by smart people, you know. And so when we, when we got there, there was already sort of a template, and we weren't creating new new characters uh, a ton when when I first showed up. So it was just like working in this world and drawing these characters that all had like pretty sharp designs, um, and they each have their own like personalities. And so you lean into that, and that, and that plays into how you draw their body language, or their their facial reactions, or whatever. It's not too tough to tell. Like before, I put the hair on and the color and stuff. Like I could just draw a pony face uh, for most of them, and you'd be like, "Oh, this is that one," just because they they have a pretty strong uh, like attitude character. Um, you guys might not be able to tell this is that one, but I could find people that would <laughs> that'd be like, oh, that's for sure. And then it's it's interesting, too, because you were talking about corporate clients and whatnot, and I know Hasbro is extremely protective. There's human beings, and that is their profession, is working for these various uh, companies and protecting the brand and the IP and, and say, like, the hair on this pony is too long. Right. Uh, on this book, uh, and thankfully because, uh, like, I feel like I've gotten better as I've, uh, you know, over the years. And when I first got there, I wasn't, like, super great at them. And luckily, because of however it is that they work with IDW, uh, which is the publisher, the publisher licensed out the, the comic from Hasbro. 
and then they they put it all together and they send it to Hasbro and Hasbro gives the thumbs up or the thumbs down because of however they work with them on previous books because they do like G.I. Joe and Transformers and all kinds of stuff. Uh, I feel like they were sort of used to how comics are different from licensing art or packaging art um, in that it's a, a serial uh, medium and they, they they have to keep things moving and so they just would be like, oh, this is how this guy draws ponies. That's fine. You know, like, this is what this guy's style looks like. And they would hire, you know, we're all good artists, you know, competent artists. So the thing would come in and it would look like a thing. And Hasbro, for the most part, never had issues. A couple times they would be like, move this line some minuscule amount, you know, like, and you just be like, huh, okay. We never got like, here's what the turnarounds look like. Here's the style guide. Make sure you do, you know, her eyes only this far apart and, you know, we never got notes like that. And some of the artists, like, I draw pretty close to the style of the show. Like, mine look like the thing. But some of the artists just were just like, well, look, if I'm going to do this, I don't want to get lost in this property. Like, I'm going to do it my way. And so, like, Andy Price, who draws a lot of the comic, he draws his ponies look like his ponies, you know? Like, it's a whole other offshoot of the thing. Or this dude, Jay Fosgett, who you guys might know, he does a book called Bodie Troll. He was just like, yeah, I'll do it. And he draws them, and they just look like like Chuck Jones cartoons almost, you know? Like, mm-hmm. luckily, the comics in this specific situation, they sort of let us run and, and have a lot of freedom. Um, and that was helpful to me uh, as, a, as a younger artist, as somebody that was just getting on. It gave me a little room to mess up and not be worried that I wasn't going to get called back. I mean, I'm always worried that I'm not going to get called back, but not because I, you know, drew the, their legs wrong or put their eyes too close together or something. Yeah. Now that doesn't seem to be common practice though in the, in the, the corporate Mm-mm. world that, you know, you have the freedom. Usually those style guides are, I mean, I've had some just ridiculously uh, font choices that you, you can't use the, the, the semi light in this fashion. I was like, I can't even tell the difference between the two fonts you're talking about. Yeah. It's not even common practice with my little pony. Yeah. I've worked for other companies on the same license um, and if it's like a children's book, they have a lot longer to put that together. And so they'll come back uh, with more notes on something like that. Uh, I think it is just specific to the the deal or how they work with IDW mm-hmm. in that they must have run into it enough times that IDW is like, look, we got to go to print. You know, like <laughs> if this thing comes out in, in three weeks. We have today's the day or nothing, you know, uh, and that's not the deal. That's not the deal with stuff that has a longer tail on it. Yeah. You know? And this is a, what, a 40 year media franchise now we're going on that I suppose yeah. it's going to have Not its changes. quite that old. Uh, according to Wikipedia, the first <laughs> one was in 1981. Uh, is that true? It's painful. Uh, that's, <laughs> that sounds My right. My Pretty I mean, Pony that, in 1981. Yeah, they did the toys that made us about it and it seems like that's right. Because the yeah the first big one and I, and there's some that were in the 70s that were like the same people were sort of knocking at the door of this idea but hadn't really cracked it wide open yet. Hmm. No, no, I I think it's Great more idea. I didn't want that to be true. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious about the just had a uh, a Rick and Morty book come out which was written by our friend Josh Trujillo and you can listen oh, yeah. to his. Uh, interview on our podcast wherever you found this one and so was that like a a nice a nice stretch get to do uh still in an animation style but uh adult anything's a nice change of pace 
although you get real used to not drawing hands or clothes or cars that's that's sort of like a a suit you got to put back on when you go go back to drawing even cartoon people but yeah Josh Trujillo book uh, super fun it was at Oni Press I had done a graphic novel with them uh, a couple of years ago and I'd done a cover around that time too for Rick and Morty when they first started making the comics uh, and so they just hit me up a few months before COVID and we're like hey you want to work on this and the once you start working in comics all your the people that work at the companies that you work for it's a very small business in that in that way so they just sort of shift around so I knew the people at Oni from having done a book there but then Sarah Gatos who's the editor-in-chief there now used to work at IDW uh, and before that she worked at Wildstorm but I knew her from IDW and like we would be at you know mixers or comic cons together or whatever and hang out and as you can tell I'm I'm a chatty person so I would just chat with everybody and not necessarily in a, like, this will be good for me later sort of way. Just, like, what am I going to do? Stand there like a weirdo, you know? Like, well, <laughs> let's, let's go see what these people are up to. I like that guy. Let's go see who he's talking to. <laughs> but, yeah, she, she hit me up and was like, hey, we're going to, you know, do Rick and Morty. You want to draw one? And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. Not a super complicated story. <laughs> but that book was interesting because uh, Josh wrote the whole thing. But the way the story works, Rick and Morty get split up and go on two different adventures. They set it up, I don't know if to just make the make it easier to, to crank out a thing by putting more artists on it, uh, but I drew the Morty adventure, and this guy named Jarrett Williams drew the Rick adventure, and then they just sort of cut back and forth between the two. So it's interesting. I always like like jam comics like that, where it's like you, sort, you get more artists for your book. I feel like there are probably people that just are annoyed by, you know, like not having the exact same artist draw every page of the thing, but... For my money, I think this is a cool use of the format. And then we both, we had very different styles. So, like, when you turn the page, you know that, like, oh, you're back in the Morty adventure because now now the lines look different or whatever. Or at least if you're somebody that pays attention to that sort of thing. For sure. So that was cool. And it was fun to do, you know, something with people and, <laughs> and cars and fingers and stuff. This episode of Muse is sponsored by Zeppelin Comics. Located in the heart of historic downtown Benicia, California, Zeppelin Comics is your source for comics, graphic novels, games, and gifts. A comic book store like no other. You can find Zeppelin Comics online at zeppelincomics.com. Last year, up in in Portland, we were hanging out, and you were telling me all about Stray Dogs, and it was supposed to be coming much sooner than it came out this week and congratulations on it because we already sold Thanks. out sweet and and it's it's already the the second printing is happening so that's that's always good news and, and I want to I definitely want to talk about it but um what you were saying about the the comic industry being being small and and being chatty is because it is so small any misstep is also amplified. So it's it's oh, nice sure, yeah. to be able to to get work and to to know people and 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 interact and and everything, but you also want to make sure that you know people and interact and so yeah, a safety net. But yeah, so getting back to like Stray Dogs is a book that you write and yeah. so primarily you you've written a few other books but if I had to put you down as artist, 
Yeah. And I'm curious from like the Genesis perspective, you come up with an idea. You're like, this is a cool idea for a book. I'm going to do it, but I'm not going to draw it. Yeah. Was that like a conscious decision or was it a timing issue or? Oh, a hundred percent. It's a conscious decision. Um, and it's for a couple of reasons. One, it is a timing issue. Um, like when I came into comics, it was writing and drawing my own work. And that's sort of how I hope to go out of comics or, you know, whatever. Like I, I want to eventually just do that full time, like write and draw my own stuff. But in the meantime, I have to, you know, I could write and draw as much stuff as I want and put it out. And if nobody knows who I am or retailers don't know who I am or publishers don't know who I am, there's no money in it for me, I guess, unless I would have been smart and started figuring out like web comics uh, you know, 10 years ago or whenever, whenever the big boom was where you could make a steady living doing web comics. Uh, but I didn't do that because I was always sort of singularly focused on, on making these comics on paper. And so when I started getting work drawing comics or working in comics, like I'd also get work like lettering stuff or coloring stuff. Cause I had trained myself to do all these different pieces and you meet people and they need stuff done. Nobody ever needs a writer like, you know, nobody ever just calls me up and goes like, hey, do you have time to write something real quick? They definitely need somebody to letter something or to, to color something. And so the, the part that gets pushed aside when you're trying to get work in a thing is uh, the writing part, you know, because a lot of times it'll be like a writer is hiring somebody to put a comic together or the writer is like, you know, in the last 15 years or so, 20 years or so, the writer is like the marquee name. And then they just need artists to to round out the book, you know, mm-hmm. working on My Little Pony. Like I wrote My Little Pony uh, like five years ago. Like I was like, hey, can I write some of these? And they were like, yeah. And so I wrote one. But then if you want to keep writing them, you have to just keep pitching for them and, and keep like uh, it's like a whole different muscle than than the drawing because they need the drawing. So they just email me all the time and say, like, hey, we need you to draw. And that's easy. But to write that stuff, you have to just always be, like, emailing pitches and springboards and, like, checking in and stuff like that. And that is uh, not my mentality. Uh, And it's also, like, a lot of work to do a thing that, like, I like writing My Little Pony like I'm doing it right now. But it's not what I'm aiming for. It's a lot of work to do, like, a thing that's sort of close to the thing I'm aiming for, you know? Like, if I want to write and draw my own stuff... Uh, how hard can I make myself work to write and draw somebody else's stuff? You know, is there a preference in in what you like to do? Do you do you want to draw your own written word, or do you like? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, eventually, I feel like I have this uh, vision or whatever. Mm-hmm. Not like I'm like, oh, I'm a genius, and wait till you all see. But like, with Stray Dogs, it's a very s- strange premise, and we'll get to it, but it's a thing where when I would tell people about it initially, you get a lot of people like looking at you sideways. Like that's weird. Um, but once I, you know, like once me and Trish made it and put it out and like, you can look at it and you say what it is and you look at it and you go like, Oh, I get what that is. That's cool. You know? Um, and I feel like writing and drawing myself is sort of like the final form version of that, where it's just like, I have a bunch of cool ideas and I just want to be able to do those. But, it's like setting up who, who pays for them, who publishes them. 
not to mention the time because you say yes to everything else. Well, exactly. <laughs> and and that's why I have an artist on straight. That's one of two reasons uh, I have an artist on Stray Dogs and uh, Time Shopper, the other book that I did recently, um, is just that basically making creator own books is like my part time job. And my full time job is making the stuff that I get hired to make. Um, and so that's what, you know, pays for my bills and then also pays for making these other books that you just sort of like invest in yourself and then you publish them. And then like if like with Stray Dogs where I'm at Image, you get all of the profits pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I didn't have time to to write it and draw it. So uh, I was looking for somebody to to collaborate with so that we could actually make it. Um, and then the other side of that is my vision. Like when I had the concept for, for the book, stray dogs, I was, I had a very specific vision of what it looked like. And it looked 30% different from what I do or like 20% different from what I do, like very close, but something where I knew I would F it up over the course of five issues, you know, like eventually I would just sort of fall into drawing how I draw and then it just would look like whatever. Um, and when I found Trish, uh, like she was a lady that I knew from, uh, my little pony conventions. I had like, she drew exactly how I wanted the thing to look and I'd seen her draw dogs. And I was like, Oh, if I could just get somebody like this lady to do it, this would look perfect you know and so i did and i think it does you know like it looks exactly like what i want it to look like which is a thing as an artist you're all like you always have a vision in your head of like okay so this is what it'll look like and then you go to all the work of making it and then when you get there it looks pretty close you know like it looks if the better you get the closer it looks Uh, but this is a thing where it looks just like how i want it to look so that's a that, that feels pretty good for sure and i couldn't i couldn't have got that by myself that makes total sense. And so Stray Dogs is a very unique story where, like, I would say the the aspect of it is that it deals with with memory. And I'm trying to, like, there's a specific term, and I'm, I'm blanking on it as far as, like, the, uh, it's... It's the unreliable narrator, I think. Well, for is, those who are not they, familiar yeah. with it, can you but yeah, so, set it up? So... It's a group of dogs with poor short-term memory trying to solve a mystery. Okay. Is, is I would say, the, the hook aspect. But the, the cartoon, um, and I know in your write-ups you've said Don Bluth and referenced uh, Don Bluth, and yeah. you definitely get that when you look at the page. <laughs> uh, for all of our listeners who don't have it sitting in front of them and whatnot. Um, and so... It's a very dark subject, and you use a lot of uh, horror movie reference and and whatnot, um, but overlaid with a very kids cartoon look. Right. Sorry, I think I think he wanted you to explain it, not me. So <laughs> is that <laughs> yeah, is that accurate? Like he's doing okay. This is fine. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, when I thought about it the other day, I'll go back and explain it. Um, I'll do the fast one. I had never made the connection to Scooby-Doo until just like last week, you know, the, like we've been working on it for two years and somebody was like, Oh, horror cartoon, like Scooby-Doo. And I was like, Oh shit, that's crazy. <laughs> uh, but it's sort of like if in Scooby-Doo, uh, those monsters had killed people and then Scooby and the mystery gang had to really 
like they were dealing with real stakes mm-hmm. instead of just like somebody that's trying to shut down the amusement park or whatever. But yeah, Stray Dogs is a limited series. It's a, a contained story, and the premise is there's like a non-spoiler version and there's a spoiler version. And the non-spoiler version is uh, dogs' memories aren't as good as people's memories. And so uh, this is a story that's told from the point of view of a dog who doesn't quite understand what's going on around her, but she's in a place that looks like she's in like uh, Oliver and Company or like a uh, uh, Rover Danger Field or all dogs. Not, not all dogs go to heaven. That's like an adventure. They're all over the place. They go to hell. This is just a, a dog in a house with other dogs, and she's like, "This it should be a normal Disney movie or like Aristocats or some sort of like regular animals having fun in a place situation." But this dog is traumatized and uneasy, and she doesn't know why because dogs' memories work differently. Like she doesn't remember why she's why she doesn't feel uh, right, and then all these other dogs look to be fine. And what we find out in the first issue is that, like, all these other dogs are not fine. And the thing that this this main dog knows is something terrifying. And it sort of flips the flips these dogs' world upside down if they choose to believe what she says, which, you know, she's an unreliable narrator and they're skeptical, you know. So it's about her convincing these dogs that what she believes is going on before they all forget again. It's got, like, a little bit of memento energy to it. Canine memento. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Um, the version is there's a serial killer that takes his victim's dogs as trophies, cool. and then the dogs forget what's going on. And so this is a house full of the dogs of murdered people, but they, they all feel like they're in, like, a Don Bluth movie, but in actuality they're living in, like, you know, Henry portrait of a serial killer. Um, but it's drawn in that classic 90s animated style. And so as a reader, you also feel like when you look at it, you feel like, oh, we're in this thing, you know, like this is nice. Uh, and then the twists should come as as more of a shock uh, because it because it doesn't look like what you expect to be shocking, which is the hope. Like it's been out for like a week now or less than a week. And some of the reviews, I can see people uh, wanting it to be, be more like things they recognize, which is the sort of the opposite of what, you know, sort of the opposite of what we were doing. But like, they'll just be like, I don't know if this art style is going to work for this story. And I'm like, no, we made, like we made the art style this way so that it would work for this. You know, it's, it's not like I wanted to make like an avatar book, you know, like a, a outlaw comic. And the only person I could find to draw it was somebody who drew very soft cartoons, you know, like it's a, a plan for sure. And I think it, it yeah. I think it works because part of what it sets up is those character archetypes. It's like, yeah. ah, here's the German Shepherd. You know he's going to be the leader. <laughs> here's the old Basset Hound. You know he's the skeptic. You know, without you having to to spell that out, without you having to say that. You know, it's like yeah, shorthand. Sure, and and because we've watched enough cartoons with enough dogs doing what their stereotypical dog breeds do you do you have that that shorthand and it is a fun juxtaposition to put that kind of because even if you want to talk about scooby-doo scooby-doo was drawn kind of dark if you look at it in comparison with other hanna-barbera stuff Mm -hmm. this is almost always Mm -hmm. at night it used a lot of dark and shadows and and whatnot so the idea of kind of doing a horror comic with kind of bright and chipper um, and and um, cartoonish 
styling is is kind of the the fun of it and what you did in what makes me want to read the next issue is you did leave it ambiguous obviously you just spoiled it but that's fine (laughs) but you did leave it ambiguous it's like this dog's memory is not good we've we've set that up so if she's having a, a vision of something bad happening to her owner it might not be right she might be misconstruing the situation and dogs get uh, scared and upset over all sorts of things, you know, thunderstorms, yeah. even though they're in a nice, dry, safe house. Yeah. My dog was just barking at the refrigerator last night. Exactly. Nothing <laughs> wrong. Food out of it. <laughs> mad at it. So do you leftovers. distrust your refrigerator? <laughs> some leftovers in there. <laughs> He hates appliances. Yeah, I'll find him barking at the like the dryer. It's not even turned on. Like he just doesn't like appliances at all. Normally, it's just the vacuum cleaners that the dogs freak out. Our dogs hated the vacuum cleaner. They were vicious yeah. when when my mom would fire it up. He's a rescue, so I feel like he might have some uh, sort of trauma tied to uh, refrigerators and dryers. I guess <laughs> I have no idea. He's a weirdo. Yeah, and you're trying um, to piece it together through his memory, right? Is you're trying to figure right. out what yeah. his damage is because he can't tell like, you what what happened to you, <laughs> who hurt you. <laughs> Yeah, but that's, I mean, that's sort of where this premise came from. Um, not the entire premise, but just the idea that, like, I would go on walks with my dogs, and uh, we always go one way, you know? And they would, uh, and, and, like, they're not allowed to go in certain yards or do certain things. And some days they would remember, and some days they would just either not remember or just not care. And so it was just me sort of just going, like, I wonder what they're thinking about, you know? Like doesn't seem super stupid so like i feel like either he doesn't care but maybe he just forgot you know the conclusion i came to uh definitely for the story just because that's how you can do a mystery is like oh they forget you know like they they hold on to uh you know where their food bowl is and the the very important you know like basic fundamentals what their name is what it means when i say come here but even that you know like Sometimes I'm just like, I wonder if he knows what I'm saying or if he's just like, he hears me hollering <laughs> and then he just like finally wants to shut me up. Um, but yeah, for the purposes of a mystery to have the dogs not know what's going on and also like who knows what their brains are like, who knows how they process things or if a dog sees someone in danger, they get alert. The right kind of dogs, like the dogs that would that would be rescue dogs have like a, a fight or flight or like a sense of panic or whatever. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of me thinking about that type of type of stuff, yeah, and and just how that how that helps you with a with a mystery plot because you do, like you don't know if the dog really saw what she says she saw she's seeing and the other dogs don't know that and it's it's sort of like very good for plot. And I read up on dog brains just to be okay, you know, like I didn't want to go too deep to find someone that was just like dogs have perfect memories, you know, <laughs> like they everything they're elephants uh, on <laughs> that live in your house. <laughs> And, and of course, we know like the the dogs where like somebody comes back from overseas, they like they've been uh, at, at war or like stationed overseas, and then their dog remembers them. You know, four years later, they they get so excited to see them. Like you see, obviously, that's a thing. Yeah. But yeah, I don't think that dog remembered like what they did the Tuesday before he left. You know, mm-hmm. we're coming up in an hour, so um, I want to kind of wrap things up. Tony, appreciate. Uh, your time. So let's yeah, let's end with with um, uh, what we call a good and not so good projects. We'll start with 
a project that was challenging in your career, um, how you overcame obstacles and what, the, you know, the learning moment, and then end on a positive note. What is a project that you're super proud of? Um, your favorite child. Favorite child, yeah. I mean, I've done so many, like... Spelled America <laughs> The wrong. comics I make. <laughs> that was a bad project. I did a graphic novel... Uh, it was a, a miniseries that ended up being a graphic novel at, at Oni Press uh, a few years ago called Jeff Steinberg, Champion of Earth. Uh, and it's a book that I really like. Um, but I did it from the business end all the way through the uh, like the execution of it. I made every wrong move. Um, like I feel like it's drawn fine. Like It looks as, as well as I could draw something that many years ago. I'm happy with it. But just like it took me forever to draw it, and I didn't. I overcommitted, and I uh, and I took a price that was like the wrong price um, for the amount of work that it was. But it was at a time when I think it was before even I started drawing My Little Pony, and it was a publisher that I loved saying like, "Hey, we want to work with you." And before they even said any money, I was just like, "Well, I'm going to say yes to no matter what," you know. And then they said a number for a graphic novel that, uh, and this is not a slight, like a slight to them. Like this is just like what they were paying. And they said a number that I was like, well, that's more than my like my rent for one month. <laughs> so I was just like, yeah, that sounds reasonable. And I said yes to it. And then that money went away pretty quickly. And I just still had this 160 thing I had to draw, uh, 160 page thing I had to draw. And so I had really overcommitted, and then I had to start taking other work and other, you know, doing conventions or taking on commissions or working for other clients. And so the thing stretched on just for years to the point where, like, when it finally came out, I feel like we uh, had missed our moment. You know, like, it was <laughs> like it was set. In, the guy worked in a video store. And when it came out, there were not video stores anymore. Uh, Obama was the president. And when it came out, Trump was being inaugurated, you know? And so it was just like this this thing that I just, it could have been great if, you know, like if I had just planned it better or like argued for the money for it that it would cost for me to just sit there and do the thing all day long. But because I was so just geeked about like a publisher saying like, hey, you want to draw a graphic novel? I was like, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it is... It's like the downside of that advice, just always say yes to everything, you know, is because I'm programmed to always say yes to everything and then just figure out how to make it work. But in this case, you know, it's just like this. I mean, eventually it did work, you know, like the comic came out, but it's just such a huge project uh, that you have to give it a little more thought, you know, up front. Mm -hmm. If some like if they mm -hmm. come to me and said, do you want to draw a 120 page thing, you know, or a 22 page thing or whatever? Uh, then it would just be like whatever the thing is is fine. I can definitely figure out how to make that work. But in a on these big things, uh, it sounds very rudimentary knowledge. <laughs> but like the bigger the project, the more you want to think about how the deal is and how it's going to work out for you. And like, does it make sense? Is this practical? Right. And I didn't do that on that one. And so while it's a book that I really like and people like it. Uh, I feel like more people would have liked it if it had came out, you know, like two years prior. Um, and if it would just sort of like if it landed in its moment, 
where I think we just sort of landed someplace where it was just like the people that read it are fans of me or uh, fans of uh, Josh Vialkov, who I co-wrote it with. And so, like, that's a smaller pool than just, like, the people who are fans of, like, you know, clerks or, you know, something like some slackery sci-fi milieu, you know, like, that's a thing that definitely had a moment, you know, like that movie Paul mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. not that that was like <laughs> a huge smash hit, but like, you know, millions of people saw that this was, this is not like influenced by that, but it's just like, Oh, they're doing stuff like this. That's one that like, like I said, I like it. I just wish I would have gone about it more, sure. uh, you know, sure. more wisely. I wish I would have made better decisions. Well, let's transition to um, uh, one of your favorite projects, your, your favorite child. I hate to do the the one that's currently coming out, but it's, I mean, it's definitely my best child, you know, like, you know, <laughs> I'm from a, like I said, I'm from a big family and you know, when you see big families, you can tell which one's the one that they, that they love the best, you know, like, oh, this is the one that's going to college and going to be out of the house on time, you know, like <laughs> this one's just fine. <laughs> this is my kid that's going to college. Like, uh, <laughs> it's in AP classes. It's <laughs> making all the right moves. Um, but yeah, Stray Dogs is uh, it's not like I took into account the lessons that I learned on, it's not like my life doesn't work like a TV episode, but, uh, I did make sure that like, I can't account for like the zeitgeist or whatever's going on when the book came out, but I made sure to plan, like look at it, do the math on it, make you make a plan on like how long it would take us and, uh, how much it would cost and like all that stuff before we even started. And, I'm finding a, a, a collaborator with it. And also just like, whereas, you know, I would compare Jeff Steinberg champion of earth to, to something like Paul or like to Kevin Smith movies or, you know, like that sort of like Judd Apatow, um, dudes, <laughs> dudes who don't care about shit. Milieu <laughs> stray dogs. I could not, I mean, I can compare it to two things that don't go together, but I can't really compare it to another thing. There've been like cartoons you know, like there's that one uh, French cartoon with cats that like witness murders. So it's sort of close, but like that's not a that's not one like you could say like oh Aladdin and people are just like of course I've seen it. You know, like that's a, that's a sort of a deep cut, and it's not the same same thing. So as far as being like a project that came together how I wanted it and and feels different from everything, and then just came out and so far I mean it's only been out for a week, but it's going better than anything else I've ever done. And so that sort of, that sort of puts it on top of the heap. Excellent. Uh, but stray dogs Excellent. has been really great. Like I said, we did plan it out and sort of like, we worked on it for two years. Like I said, it was our part-time job and we just sat there and, uh, cranked on it in between doing other jobs, but there was no pressure because it was just like, well, when this thing is done, then we'll start putting it out and we don't have to worry about the deadline pressures and all the other stuff that I've dealt with in other uh, parts of my career. Like this thing, we'll just make it all about making it this thing. And then when it's done, we'll see if people like it, you know? Cool. Well, it's a, it's a super interesting concept. And Dan said it's sold out right, right away, right? Yeah. So we'll have the second print and who knows, maybe third, fourth, fifth. <laughs> Excellent. Tony, thank you so much for your time. It was fascinating talking to you. Appreciate all your insights and sharing your career. Yeah, you bet. Dan, thank you very much too. Absolutely. 
And thank you, the audience, for listening to this episode of Amuse. Please check the show notes for links on some of the topics we discussed. For more conversations with creative professionals, please hit the subscribe button. Until next time, that's a wrap. Thank you.